it was always so queer burlesque and now it's all very gentrified very straight everybody's so pretty they spend so much on their costumes and it's wonderful but it's also like wow what happened Mm, just doesn't mm. say very much anymore whereas I felt like we had so much to say but then I guess we were kicking out against a world that just wanted to make us all so invisible Hello, I am Kay Anderson and you are listening to Lost Spaces, the podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Now, every week I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories that they created there, and the people that they used to know. So, gentrification is a bit of a dirty word around these here parts and I often talk to my guests about how gentrification has impacted the spaces that they want to talk about and you know maybe eight nine times out of ten the reason that the bar closed is because of gentrification and because the queers and the misfits were pushed out of a certain area. And one of the places in the world where I feel like gentrification has just absolutely transformed an area is King's Cross. And not the King's Cross in London, but the King's Cross in Sydney, Australia. When I was growing up as a little queer boy in Adelaide, King's Cross represented this kind of den of inequity. I don't know if that's the right terminology, but it was the place where you would go for taboo things, strippers and prostitutes and gambling and just things that my little brain couldn't possibly wrap his head around. And fast forward 20 or so years and the whole place is totally, totally different. We have super expensive apartments, super expensive lattes, super expensive everything. And there is really very little remnant of what was once there. So, I mean, other than the obvious, what happened? Well, this week we are joined by Imogen Kelly, who is also known as Australia's first lady of striptease, who has come on to tell us all about her time stripping at the bar Stripperama in the 90s. And you know I love talking about the 90s. She has written a memoir about those times, and we get to go in depth about some of the things that she covers in that book. We discuss what King's Cross was like in those days. We talk about living during the HIV and heroin epidemic of the 90s. We talk about police corruption, which was rife at that time. And we also get to find out about the woman that she fell in love with at this time. And I totally get if right now you're thinking, hang on, what the hell does a strip bar have to do with the queer scene? But it's worth knowing that King's Cross is just around the corner from Oxford Street, which is Sydney's main gay strip. And so there was lots of intermingling and influence between the drag queens and the strippers. And besides all of that, Imogen has said that the scene was pretty queer in and of itself with lots of queer identifying women in those bars stripping. So let's get to it.
it just was something I always loved was the idea of being a showgirl. But then when I got it sent to a convent in my teens, and they, they, were, they were, I was one of those quite challenging people. Um, like school counsellor would sit there and say, so what are you going to be when you grow up, Imogen? And I'd just say, I'm going to be a stripper, <laughs> just, just to try and get them away from me. I was only joking. But then when we had to do work experience, I did actually come in with work experience with a troupe called The Sexations, just again, just to tease them. Um, but wait, it's sort of... wait, you weren't you weren't underage stripping, were you? No, no, no I wouldn't love to do it, of course. Um, but I, I went and did uh, work experience at an advertising company. Oh, oh, okay, boring. Oh, boring, I know. But I did love the idea of stripping. But I had this idea that it was really glamorous and beautiful, and men would, you know, be throwing diamonds at me, and it would be all limousines and mink stoles or something, and it was far from that. Uh, but. When I went to university, I met this incredible woman who had an underground, sort of like a talent pageant, a talent quest, looking for the wickedest woman in Australia. And it was sort of a BDSM dyke underground event that would happen in warehouses and people would really try and out-wicked each other. And the, the acts on stage were explicit because there was no, people could do whatever they wanted for the first time ever and this was at the height of the AIDS epidemic and in a recession in Australia so people were really poor the inner city was completely dead at night and we had our choice of warehouses and there was a, a heroin epidemic going on as well so and so queer people were just really pushed to the fringes but there was room in those sort of underground bunkers to make really amazing unusual things happen mm. So this this wicked pageant, did you mm. ever win? No, I never even went in it. I was far too shy, but all of my friends went in it. And interestingly enough, the people who went in it, with the exception of one, they, they sort of, they're still going, like they sort of became gods among us. There was like these underground figures, they were all women, and they were just really hardcore. Like a lot of them were BDSM mistresses or strippers or something of the like. And so myself and Tallulah, I call her in my book, we got together and I was like, how on earth do you afford to do uni and all that? And she goes, oh, easy, I'm a stripper. <laughs> I went, well, she can do it. And she's there with her bald head and, uh, you know, uh, stompy Johnny Rebs. And I, I thought, well, I can do it, you know, because I had a mohawk and, I sort of looked like Tank Girl. So she was just like, oh, well, come on, come on and do this. And so I got myself a job and that was that. It, was, it paid for everything I did for the next 20 years of travelling around the world or my education. And whatever I wanted to do, I could do because of that job. And so the very first job, where was this? <laughs> the first one was actually on Oxford Street at a place called The Pleasure Chest, but I, I didn't like it. I think I lasted two nights before I just went, this is insane. I was getting 12 bucks a show. It was rubbish. And I was only doing two or three shows a night, so it wasn't really making it worth my while to stay. And there were a lot of very damaged people. The other strippers were very... If you can imagine, the 90s, it wasn't exactly a very glamorous job. It didn't pay very well. So the kind of people who were doing it were just really hard work. Mm. So I left that club and went wandering down Darlinghurst Road and was looking for my right place to be. 
and I saw a sign called Striparama and being a fan of Tizarama films and old school burlesque or even then I just love those sort of kitschy side of stripping I went I reckon that's my club <laughs> and I walked mm-hmm. in and um, yeah I met the man that became my employer and my protector for up to five to ten years he was in and out of my life uh, and he was a very unpleasant man uh, he was a very violent man but in those days I think you needed you needed protection if you were working in that industry and he gave that to me. And so how does that work then in terms of like, so you've, you've described him as your protector. Is that someone who owns or is employed by the venue? Or? I'd say the club was owned by someone up the chain. It was, uh-huh. you know, Abe Saffron's King's Cross still. Um, but who that would be, I wouldn't know and I didn't want to know. The trick is to know as little as possible about anything and just turn up and go to work. But, yeah, that, that man, he's still around, he's still at large, he's still, um, you know, employs strippers. Um, other than that, I don't know what he gets up to and I don't particularly want to. Oh, so were you hired by him but working in that venue? Yeah, yeah. So he was oh, like the I manager see. or the, we just call him the boss, but he ran it and paid somebody for, for the privilege of using the, the premises, mm-hmm. but then he would pay for everything that went in there. So I remember him doing up the bar and getting all these fancy neon lights and he'd paint it. And, you know, he's a very industrious person compared to the other club owners. And we worked hard too for him and he, he took care of us, you know. We didn't have to worry about any of the other problems that were going on in the cross, which were quite vast because this is just before the Woods Royal Commission um, went through in 1995 and, as I've said, at the peak of a heroin and AIDS epidemic. So, you know, we were sort of, sh- well, was, I don't know, we weren't really sheltered from anything, but we kind of were as well. Mm-hmm. He wanted the best girls in the strip. He wanted elite, beautiful young women. And we, we just, I just didn't really care <laughs> what was going on around me. I didn't have the energy to. I had so much going on in other parts of my life. And I just assumed it was all normal. So what, what was going on in other parts of your life? Um, well, I was studying and I'd left home. So I left home at 17. Home was not a very happy place because my mother had died when I was nine and my father remarried and um, his, his new wife was, even though she's my stepmother and had a hand in raising me, she I don't know, she didn't want us around, I guess. Or mm-hmm. She was just, just had fits of rage. I don't know what goes on with her, really. And then we all just split. My older brother went off to India and became a holy man. And my younger brother ran away and lived in a cave <laughs> in this posh suburb and would um, attack people on their way to the ferry in the morning to steal money and stuff. And it was very funny. But he was known <laughs> as the cave boy of Mossman. He was this sort of local urban legend and I ran away to King's Cross and um, lived in what I guess you'd call just artist squats where there were lots of them at the time the inner city as I've said was empty so a lot of the buildings Mm. were vacant boarded up yeah and it was not hard to find somewhere to live you you might not have had we had to pinch electricity and you know sometimes there wasn't electricity or power or stuff like that oh wow yeah, so there were lots of people living like that and they were really interesting people. And it was sort of normal for artists to live like that, like just take over warehouses or pay a minimum around, amount of rent 
and you'd have a whole warehouse and you could do whatever you wanted with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we established quite a few artist warehouses that way because uh, you just get together with a group of people who also needed somewhere to live but space to make their art and you'd create this sort of communal uh, lifestyle, very much like a share house, but everybody had to build their own rooms and we'd, we'd get um, old film sets and stuff and build our rooms out of those. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, it used to look really quite amazing, some of them. And it was, it was just really amazing, the people who, who came together to work there and we were all from different walks of life, um, some of them painters and a lot of film people coming through or people who were doing sculpting. And then there was me studying, but I had money to pay for a bit of rent mm-hmm. because I was dancing every night. And so let's go to Striparama. Mm. Do you remember the first night you ever stripped there? Yes, I remember it distinctly. It was such an event in some ways because I was so nervous. And I'd walked in there with a mohawk and I had no idea what was expected because it was all very closed to the public eye. It wasn't like now where the clubs are a lot more gentrified and it's a bit more socially acceptable. It was very taboo for women to be in those clubs unless you're working in them. And there was no cameras or footage or anything of strippers or striptease because it could really destroy your life if, Mm. you know, the photo ended up somewhere and there were always those photographers hovering about trying to get a photo that could get them into... People magazine or one of those sort of rubbishy, awful magazines, you know, oh, look at the Norks on this one or whatever, and then you kind of your family sees that and all that stuff mm. because it was only just legal and it was very heavily associated with sex work. So to be a stripper in that time was you were sort of almost you were very much cast to the shadows of society and you were very much ostracised a lot for, for being a stripper. You had to be really careful how you managed it. You couldn't get a rental property, for instance. You can get your name mm-hmm. on a lease because yeah. they want to talk to your boss and the minute they found out you were in working in King's Cross, they thought you were going to destroy the place. Yeah. You couldn't even get the phone line on. You know, it was sort of you had to have this web of lies around you to just be able to maintain your income. But, yeah, my first night at Stripperama was... I remember walking down, it was all red carpeted stairs and lots of brass and wood and the neon signs were really cute. Like you had this sign made where this little lady in a short green skirt would take off a pair of knickers and it was really kind of uh. cute. And I thought that's, that's what I'm imagining because I had some, I think my first name was Mitzi or something really silly and everybody else <laughs> was a Jessica or, you know, <laughs> um, you know, the Sally or Brooke or, you know, they had stripper, <laughs> stripper names. I, I just wanted to be silly. And I also, you know, walked in with this mohawk and he just sort of went, all right, you know. Uh, the first gent I met was English, Ron, who was this big man and he was obviously the heavy, but he was a gentleman as well. Like he did know a few things about manners because he was English. So I felt kind of comfortable oh, with ho- Ron. Oh, hold on, hold on. Just being English doesn't mean he knows what thinks about manners. Oh, no, it's true. But compared to Aussies, or I would compare him to the actual boss. It was just like, hello, love, and, blah, blah, and come on in. And, uh, you know, he, well, I shouldn't say that. It is true. But he would make you feel <laughs> comfortable because he would talk to you like you were worth something. 
Mm-hmm. He wouldn't talk down to you. He'd be like, hello, love, well, how can I help you? Oh, yes, I'll just get the boss for you. We came in any time, but hello, welcome to work. And oh, have you got your music, love? And just held back there and let me know when you're ready. He was, compared to the others, he was just like, if there was half of them wouldn't even acknowledge you. And some of them were just downright scary. I liked Ron. He made me feel like, oh, okay, this place is a bit less shifty than... The drug mm-hmm. dealers down the road, for instance, the, the doorman going, oh, come on in, lads, come on, yeah, come and say some twang, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, but Ron didn't behave like that, so I liked the club. And there were mirrors everywhere, but it was like walking down into, I compare it for like walking down into a little womb. There's this little red room <laughs> at the end of it. And you're going down this little passageway, and I was like, oh, my God, I feel like everybody comes in here. It literally feels like semen, like just a little, little sperm wandering down the womb. And then you come to this open room at the end, and there was a small stage with glittering curtains and it had a little pole and mirror in the back. And it was tiny. The stage was tiny, but... It sort of was exciting and it was raked seating. It was like almost a proper little theatre. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, you know, and he goes, oh, sit down and watch some shows. So I sat there and watched some shows and the first two were very funny. One was a sex worker. Um, she was quite a pretty lady. Sally. Sally was really rough though. <laughs> Sally was a bit <laughs> hardcore. She didn't want to teach me anything. And then the second girl was, yeah, as I said, a brook. And Brooke was young, very young, and I'm not sure how she'd ended up there. She was 16 and uh, was obviously a runaway, uh, but she was a bit hard-edged as well. And then on came one of my favourite people in the world who has recently just passed, and that was Elizabeth Burton. My jaw dropped. I was like, that's what I want to do. I knew stripping could be glamorous because she just walked out with this long, flowing, beautiful hair, and did the most elegant striptease out of this black satin dress. And she just moved like silk, like those old-school burlesques do, and with this beautiful smile on her face. And then at the end of it, when she was naked, she bent over and she popped her pussy along to the music. I was like, what am I watching? This is well, it, was, it was the most hilarious and offensive Wait. thing. I don't know if I understand what that means. <laughs> well, she, she'd do fanny farts in time to the music. Oh, she'd okay. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> no, she calls it p- pussy popping. That, that's queefing, right? Queefing, yeah. She'd okay. queef along in the rhythm of the music <laughs> and it was really shocking. But then she'd stand up and just look like nothing had happened and <laughs> keep dancing <laughs> like a goddess and I'd be like, oh, my God, who is this woman and what is this club? And I was like... Right, so I sat there for a bit longer waiting for the boss and he goes, oh, just watch some of the movies so you get an idea of what we do here. And they put on a a porno called Pinocchio, It's Not His Nose That Grows, which is, um, it's very kitsch. (laughs) And it's so stupid again, it's really stupid. The fairy godmother's totally ditzy and waves of wands and her clothes disappear and she goes, oh, oops, you know, just silly. Um, And I was like, I think this is my place. And then I met the boss uh, who was, I call him Jason in my book, and he was, he was a very intimidating character. But I went, oh, I think you'll be all right. And he was more interested in me doing party shows, like, you know, 21sts and Bucks mm. parties and stuff. But I liked the club. And so why, why do you think he didn't put you off? Was it that you just figured that he, there was going to be one of him in every other bar? Yeah, the others I'd walked past... Uh, A, the doormen were 
It's just kind of they put me off. I didn't like them. I didn't like the way they talked about women in the clubs. I'll come and have a look at some puss bags and blah, blah. You know, they didn't say it like that. Hey, they went like this in the Aussie accent. Mm. And um, I just didn't feel comfortable about those clubs. And my feelings were right because as time went on, yeah, I, eventually J- Jason got chased out of the club um, and out of King's Cross and I did end up working for those people and they were scary. Um, they were really, really bad news. So it was like a lesser of several evils. Yeah, it was. It was. But it was also like prior to that I'd been working in a library, which I loved, but I was not earning enough money to pay for anything because I was studying film. So back mm-hmm. then I needed, I needed to buy the film, I needed to buy the sound stock, I needed to get it all processed and that was, it was expensive and I was just an art student and maybe everybody else had a mummy and daddy to pay for all those things, but I didn't have that and I also mm. was madly in love with this girl. <laughs> I just thought, this is going to be an adventure. Let's, you know, start working together. So eventually we did start doing shows together. And that's Tallulah. Yeah, that was Tallulah. Cool. So we okay, did cool. shows together after that. And so this first night when you went down and you saw everyone performing, did you perform that night yourself or was it just like a see what's in store? Um, it was a see what's in store and then come back and do an audition in a couple of days. Ah, okay. And it was like, and he goes, and wear a wig. Oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, God. So I, had to, I went to the markets and bought um, some 50s lingerie because it was everywhere at the time. And I was like, I bought a bullet bra and a girdle and this ridiculous looking Elizabeth Taylor wig that it looked like it had been beaten around the bush a few times. It was a mess. But I sort of groomed it into something and some false eyelashes and uh, stockings and, you know, went on stage and it would be a passable burlesque act now. But yeah, it didn't matter what I wore, really. I didn't care about the wig or anything. <laughs> Just like, they just wanted someone to help them pass their day. They were lonely old men, some of them, and then some of them were just there to masturbate. And <laughs> I was just like, oh, mm. God, try not to look, try not to look. Look everywhere <laughs> but at the man in the second row. <laughs> so this audition, yeah. did you, like, pick out a song? Did you, like, yeah. practice? Yeah, I, were you I shitting yourself? Practice. I had no idea what to do. <laughs> um, I even layered my clothes wrong or I took the wrong bits off at the wrong time because I was so nervous. But I think I picked Madonna's Vogue. Classic. Um, it was three songs that we had to do. So what did I do? I did Madonna's Vogue. What, so you had to take your clothes off three times or you just had to do no, it so slowly? No, just had to do it so slowly, like one piece <laughs> per song. And the rest of the time you had to dance. I felt like a lion in a cage, you know, just pacing up and down. It was so hard to fill that time. Um, oh, yeah. I'd do, you know, I developed all these different moves and tricks after a while and ways to, you know, take five minutes to take off a glove sort of thing. <laughs> um, and Elizabeth was great because she used to wear five pairs of gloves and five G-strings and that's her way around. It was just to keep layering up. And if they wanted a longer show, she'd go, okay, I can do that and just put on five more G-strings and five more pairs of gloves. <laughs> it wasn't like they got to see anything more. I thought she was very clever. But, yeah, I'd learned to dance and then I learned some pole tricks or taught myself some pole tricks so that I would have a few things to set me aside from the other girls. Ah, see, okay, so this is one yeah. of these moments where I, like, state the bleeding obvious and then act like it's this revelatory thing. But, yeah. like... In those days, there was no YouTube 
or anything to teach you how to do pole tricks. No. So how did you approach it? Just like, I'm just going to throw myself on this? Or did yeah, someone literally, teach you? it'd be like, oh, oh okay. Because <laughs> there, was, there was literally no one using that pole. And I thought, someone's got to use this pole. And I can learn by watching them, but no one touched it. And I couldn't oh, figure so out why. Yeah, no, I was one of the first. I really was. And that's a global thing too because I did shortly after that travel to um, London and there was no one touching the poles there either. So it's like we had a pole in the club but no one touched it. They sort of leaned on it because when they were tired or they'd use it to help them get off oh, the floor. Wow. But it was sort of like already and, – and Amsterdam as well, no one touching the poles. I was like, wow. But like the pole was there for – for a reason so like did it just fall out of fashion that people danced on the pole or I don't really think so I think it was um the first pole act I've seen footage of is probably the crazy horse of Paris France and even there this gorgeous woman is sort of just leaping around it and using it to pose against so there was lots of posing Mm, on the pole But there was nobody climbing it or spinning. And I was like, I know I can spin on that because I was always one of those monkey bars kids. I was uh-huh. like, I know I can do stuff on this. Um, but learning not to do it in gloves, for instance, <laughs> or <laughs> to take off my stockings first. Was that a hard lesson to learn? That was hard to sort of make it look like that was a move. Like I one time went flying off and landed in this really <laughs> exotic position. <laughs> like I was really good at making accidents look fabulous. And the time I did this high kick in these thigh-high patent leather boots and I did this incredibly high kick and on the way down the heel of one boot got stuck in the top of the other and I just fell like a tree. <laughs> but I landed on my side looking like, wow, wasn't that hot? And I was like, wow, how did you do that? Can you teach me that trick? And I was like, no, I don't think I'll even repeat that trick again myself. But the pole was, yeah, very much the only time I could really explore in it because we had curtains was um, before the show when there was hardly anyone in there either. Sometimes there were only like two or three little old men in there and I think, oh, these guys don't matter. (laughs) Go go crazy trying to climb the pole. I could climb the pole always. I didn't have a problem with that. But um, spinning on it was another question. It was a pretty funny set of experiments. Um, And then before long I had a whole repertoire of moves. Um... I'm changing the subject slightly, <laughs> but you said about the old men, like when there were just a few old men in the room and you didn't really care about them because they weren't important. And it made me think about the tipping culture in Australia mm. and how there there wasn't one. There then. wasn't one. And like whether or not you ever got tipped or if it was just not just not a thing at all. It wasn't a thing. We were allowed to go into the audience um, but we had to be careful because what we were doing was, as I said, only just legal. And it was often that we got raids or the police would be in and you'd be halfway through an act and someone would whisper into you, one of the barmaids or something, you come up and go, I think the cops are in. So you have to get back up on stage and keep your clothes on and do a tap dance <laughs> And just go, ta-da. And I always thought it was always the best fun when the raids were happening because we'd do all sorts of, you know, stupid things on stage. Yeah, just trying to keep it within legal parameters. But, yeah, it was no tipping at all. We weren't allowed to. It ah. wasn't part of the culture. And the the barmaids got tipped. They were allowed. And a lot of them were English, so they, they didn't mind pushing for tips. 
but the dancers were not interested. We, I think it was almost an insult to tip us. We'd be like, no, we don't want your money. I think that was the general attitude of the How fascinating. the main bulk of the strippers were like, no, I don't want your money. It was sort of like saying because we had to hold our own in a world where we were confused with sex workers, and don't get me wrong, like we got on with the sex workers in the club. We were all part yeah. of one demented family. But because we had a really hard time in the press and society in general, mm. we just made that distinction that we were not available like, and that people offer ridiculous amounts of money to spend a time with me. I'd be like, no, I dance mm. and I get paid to dance and that's it. I'm an entertainer. And it was really, it was a big deal for us. So when it went to table dancing and tipping, most of the older performers were just like, absolutely not. We are not doing that. That's so degrading. You know, what we do is we entertain and we perform and everybody had a gimmick and mine was pole you know, that you had to be exceptional in some way and that's how you sold your work. Tips were not welcome. A lot of people would just walk away, including myself. I'd be like, I don't want your crummy money because then they'd oh, think they could talk to you and it'd be like, no, you can't talk to me oh. because if the boss saw you talking to them or if there was a cop in the audience and saw you talking to them, you could be done for soliciting. Yes, So yeah. for our own protection, we were like, we do not accept tips. We are not soliciting for money. We are dancers and... Eventually, when I did get a job for the government through the AIDS Council, that was the biggest thing that I did was actually legitimise strippers as entertainers by law so that we didn't have to keep facing that level of prosecution. And it changed uh, the laws for sex workers in New South Wales and Victoria. So we sort of managed to change a lot of laws around the premise of what was actually happening in the clubs and what was soliciting and what wasn't. Ah, so so tell me more about the um, the work with the, did you say the AIDS Council? Yeah, well, it was actually a job called, it's through the Sex Workers Outreach Project and my job mm. was to stop strippers spreading AIDS. I walked in the first day of my new job, my only real job I've ever had, and they, all these government officials and politicians and I was only 24, I was really young, and they were like, what are you going to do to stop strippers spreading AIDS? And I was like, well, the first thing you need to understand is that that's, not what's going on because we are dancers. Yeah, yeah. We, we do go into the audience, but we're not doing anything penetrative and we don't even talk to them. So you need to change who we are and that will change who can access the clubs so your healthcare workers can access the clubs and that will change. It changed, it changed the entire landscape of King's Cross. I didn't mean that to happen. I really thought the bosses would go, oh, you're, you're legitimate entertainers, okay, so we've got to give you proper contracts um, we've got to treat you better. We can't because girls would disappear all the time or get bashed or whatever by the bosses. It was it was a shocking situation in many ways. But I just stood my ground and was like, no, you have to change these laws. And mm -hmm. they did because they were like, oh, well, we can see how it's still a health issue. And we really want those clubs to stop being so problematic. We do want sex workers to have access to viable services as opposed to being um, criminals all the time. So we found a way to legitimise sex work so that workers could have access to, you know, they could put, you know, those bosses in jail if they wanted to. And, or, you know, the strippers, we just, ah. we just wanted things like a toilet, <laughs> you know. Yes, yeah. I yeah. wanted a break every night because we were doing up to yeah. 30 shows a night. It was uh, just little things. But the bosses wouldn't, they wouldn't crumble. They were just like, oh, dirty, stupid strippers as if you'll win. But I did win. And... Mm -hmm. 
um, the clubs all changed. They had to have a different kind of legislation, uh, different kind of licensing after they changed the status of dancers. And the only places that could open had to have a security guard, they had to have a proper dressing room, they had to have someone taking care of the dancers, the dancers were registered and, you know, they had someone, I don't know, just seeing to their knees, which is the, like a mama-san or what, you, what they call the house mistress, I think. But, yeah, it really did change things for strippers and it went more to that American model of table dancing, which um, I think it's a shame in many ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, can we talk about Tallulah? Mm. Oh, yes. So, so you said you were in love with Tallulah. Yeah. And Tallulah kind of opened you up to this world? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, everybody loved Tallulah. Everybody, everyone had this huge crush on Tallulah. She was the most enigmatic and amazing young woman. And she had her own magazine. She had her own, you know, beauty pageant, as said, and she had a performance troupe and, she was just a really wonderful person. Everybody wanted to be a part of her world. So she had lots of lovers and I was just one of them. Oh. And she liked butch girls and I certainly wasn't really fitting that category at that time or any time. And that mattered at that time, to be fair, more butch, which is ridiculous. Oh, oh, let me just pick up on this. Mm. Do you think that it doesn't matter now? I'd hope not. I'd hope we'd all grown up a bit because it was very difficult to be respected if you wore lipstick, for instance, like the old-school feminist, the boiler mm-hmm. suit, dykes, they just were really hostile towards women like me. But I was sort of, I thought it was wonderful to, you know, the point of feminism is that women can have all sorts of choices when I didn't want to belong to a gang. So I certainly didn't want to be told that I was femme when, you know, you take some butch girls home and they're just really like a starfish and you end up doing all the work. And it's like, I thought I was going to get a great deal here because you look like you're a, a real, <laughs> real go-up. <laughs> like, I'm not femme. You're the bloody femme lying there on your back going, eh. That's, that's bitterly disappointing. I understand what you're yes. talking about. <laughs> yeah, it used to really annoy me though because it's, it was a form of misogyny and it was like, don't continue this in this world it doesn't help us why why Mm -hmm. are you looking down at me because you know people used to spit at me and stuff and Tallulah both and she just laughed she just thought it was hysterical when people get upset by you oh wearing lipstick or you know we'd wear all these sort of we didn't have a lot of money but we'd go up shopping for 60s mini skirts and you know kinky boots and it just it was such a fun time in that way to be up shopping because there's such fabulous clothes available Mm. But, yeah, you weren't supposed to be flamboyant. <laughs> you weren't supposed to be flamboyant on the dyke scene, but we were. And so Tallulah fancied the more butch end Yeah, and she spectrum. was BDSM as well. Yeah, so she was hardcore. And so then what did she see in you? Sorry if that sounds No, really no, <laughs> I often wondered that because but she just came up to me at uni and went, oh, my gosh, you look like Tank Girl. Do you want to be in a show? And I was like, uh, Sure. I had no idea who she was, but I'd noticed her around. She had so much confidence and I was fascinated by her, as was everybody. And so she goes, okay, I'll get your costume and just turn up here and da-da-da. So I turned up and the show was at a huge party called Sleazeball, which was originally to raise money for Mardi Gras. Mm. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's not just a little party, it's huge. And she gave me my costume, it was this G-string. I was like, okay put that on and this is before I'd started stripping obviously this is like one of the first times I'd performed 
And then she goes, okay, we'll just go out on stage and do whatever we like. And I was like, oh, okay. And that's what we did. (laughs) (laughs) And we were on one of the side stages. It's one of these huge, you know, because they used to do these big production numbers, which were so fabulous on the main stage. And I think we were supporting these big stars of drag. I think it was Benina Bod. And uh, Tallulah also had her own gang, which was the God Squad, the Girls of Disgrace. And they would walk queer people home. On, oh. um, well, they'd started off just walking each other home from the pub on a Saturday night, but because the bashings, the, the gay bashings, um, were getting so full on and the police had split Darlinghurst by 10.30, there were no police around, so it was a very dangerous place to be. Oh, wow. Yeah, the police, once they realised that AIDS spread through blood, they would not get involved in the fights, the police, and they just disappeared. Shit. So it was really gay people were out on their own and... So these, these big hardcore BDSM dykes would get together at the end of the night and they'd draw a map home and anybody else who wanted to be walked home by them and they'd start at the closest person's house and they'd drop people off one by one until the last two were left at the end and then the last person would walk themselves home but call back along the line when they reached home. So, yeah, she was an amazing woman, Tallulah. And, yeah, so... I was really inspired by her and I didn't mind that, you know, she wasn't my girlfriend or anything like that. I just liked, I knew that her influence was really good on me. It was just showing me what, that to be unafraid and to be brave and to just sort of keep laughing at how ridiculous the world was about mm. things like Femme and Butch or she never used those terms. Um, she just, she mm. was all of it. And so you said that she had multiple lovers. Mm. Oh, I hate that word, lovers. By yeah, I the way. don't know what else to say. Really, there weren't. There certainly weren't partners. <laughs> she was shagging. She was people. shagging lots she of people. The, yeah, there you go. The, <laughs> did um, did you like? Did you feel jealous or was oh, yeah. it? Especially when they were similar to me. She did like seducing young girls. <laughs> And then when I saw that, oh. I was like, but I'm right here and she's just sort of like me, but she's so square and I'm so fun and why would you? But, you know, because she could. <laughs> yeah, the thrill of it, right? The thrill of it and that's who she was and that's how so many people were. But so were you sleeping with other people? No, I was really. Did you have other lovers? Oh, I probably did, but nobody liked her. I think I tried a few on. But I think when you meet someone that exciting or charismatic who's really into you, everybody else just sort of pales in existence. But, yeah, I had fabulous, um, well, not even shags. I don't know what they were. Yeah, I had some fabulous shags. There you go. I always liked them. I had, like, bikini models and (laughs) famous chefs (laughs) and all the plethora of people that I was trying, like, drug dealers. Famous chefs. Chefs, yes. hang on, let me think. Oh, I let can't. me put my okay, detective's cap on. See if you can think who. Uh, all I can think of is Ian Hewitson. No, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> not pass go. No. no. Who would be a famous I'm chef not telling. in the 90s? I don't know. He Australia. was just up and coming, <gasps> literally. Oh, he was? He, yeah, okay, he. So, that's so the I, I was okay. not. I was, I was very into girls, but. Wait, was he French? No. Okay, who could it be? 90s. But we were, we were good. <laughs> you just friends. want to change the subject. Yeah, I'm changing the subject because I'm nobody's going to hear this. But yeah, we, we were. Everybody was just sort of doing everyone. That was the the quiz, the gay scene. Everyone was. I don't know. Like maybe it's a response to HIV. 
Yeah, um, and I guess I'm asking because I'm trying to like get a picture of this because you're you're painting yourself as this lovesick puppy, which is yeah. not really the right term to use, but but mm-hmm. that's the vibe I'm getting from you. And I just wanted to verify that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know when it's that first big love and also your first gay love. Like I'd been straight, 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 thought I was into boys and then I met her and I was just like, and I've just felt like I'd come home. I was like, oh, my gosh, I suddenly make so much sense. I'm like, no wonder. Oh, that's it just was that moment. So it was, she was pretty big in my world in that she was someone who helped make me feel really comfortable and just really celebrate that um, I was not, in inverted commas, straight. But so this boys, boys, boys thing, mm. were you like... Uh, uh, she's all right, or was it just not something that you thought about at all until, um, until I was terrified up? of it because I went to a convent, like you know, and it was all girls and everybody. But that's like, where it happens. Well, the only lesbian we had out in our group got so badly bullied she left in year eight. And oh, okay. Yeah, it was no. If you were anyway dikey, it was so the, the extreme. Like everybody was terrified of being a lesbian she she dry humped the, she forcibly dry humped the prettiest girl in school and oh, had to leave oh, after okay <laughs> yeah things at the convent were pretty you know I guess interesting in that regard the girls were so uh, some of them were so bitchy it was not the kind of place you wanted to be everyone was yeah. just terrified of being gay so then do you think that you just repressed any feelings yeah absolutely Ah. I never even got to entertain that thought because I'd never met any gay people. Apart from the aforementioned leg humper. Yeah, except for leg humper. <laughs> and I thought that's what lesbianism was. I was like, oh, my gosh, they push people into a corner and dry hump them. This is terrible. <laughs> uh, in the toilets, no less. It's not even somewhere civilised. Romantic. Um, yeah, I was, I was really shocked. We were all really shocked by it. So we, I don't know, I... Um, it wasn't until I went to Sleazeball, met Tallulah, started actually going out a lot on Oxford Street and that a lot of my mentors, like people who started helping with with performing, were drag queens. And I was like, oh, well, actually it's nothing like what I thought it was and there's this really amazing, super supportive community. Yeah, and then there's these really stunning women that are just really, uh, I don't know, assertive and strong-minded and socially aware and I was like really inspired by them I was like I want to be part of this world Mm. so it was yeah it all just sort of made sense once I met Tallulah and so just picking up on this comment you've made about drag queens was there overlap then between the gay scene and the stripping scene or was it because of the the proximity yeah it was it was quite huge I mean you can't just sort of strippers that were from Ah, lower socioeconomic backgrounds who didn't have a lot of education. You know, there's there's sort of typical in Mm. in the way the media would would write about them, um, just people who didn't have great fortunes or in their youth or had come from families of abuse or been born with fetal alcohol syndrome, like something. There were those girls. And they're part of it. They're a huge part of it. I'm, I'm not, I'd never put those people down. But then a the, lot of the strippers were very queer. That was not a term openly used back then. You were gay. And then there were the people that didn't even fit into the gay scene. And a lot of them were strippers. And they were really wild and really, really fun. 
and like me, they were just trying to make money to survive on. And they, were, they ended up all of them being really, really good friends, but they were all performance artists as well. So we'd be doing strip shows. I'd be going to uni, Tallulah would be going to uni, but all the rest of them, they'd just put on these amazing events at night and we'd go along and watch each other do shows that were for a, a very queer audience, for a very alternative and subversive audience at places that like Kooky or, you know, they, they really did just start doing their own thing. So mm-hmm. there was that crossover and then eventually after Priscilla and all of that sort of or around that time when drag became a big thing coming out of Sydney in particular, those performers, a lot of them really loved Tallulah, for instance, um, they were big fans of hers and friends of hers, and they'd invite her to do an act in their show because oh, they wanted okay. women to be present. They didn't want it to be all male. And there were some drag kings around. I mean, there was Elvis herself was probably the most famous one, but it wasn't really a known thing. Like every, everybody who got up on mm. stage kind of did drag of a sort. So, yeah, we, we would do shows with the drag queens, and they were very generous. They'd teach me how to make things or give some constructive feedback or just even let us come in for free and just sit down and and watch their show to learn. They weren't Mm -hmm. all like that, but the ones that were were definitely makers and breakers in that scene at that time. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, there was that crossover definitely. It wasn't all like the boys do shows for the boys and the girls do shows for the girls. A lot of the dyke nights that were starting up liked to have a show, so suddenly we all had a little bit of work as opposed to there just being nothing. Yeah, so it's slowly changed. And so so what happened with you and Tallulah? Ah, uh, well, we still talk occasionally. Um, what happened? I went to, well, I got that, that thing done and then I had to leave the country, as I said. But even by then we'd grown apart and because it was the 90s and everybody was doing drugs, I think poor Tallulah got sucked into that sort of wormhole of drug it's abuse and I had cleaned up and was going the other direction so we really didn't talk for years um, until she'd sorted herself out and she has a, a good life now, a great job. She's a mum. She's still a really fun, fabulous, amazing person and she's up to talking about her past to a degree but she's also very wary of it which is why I don't use her real name or anything like that. Ah. You know, people still judge it, you know. Yeah. So it was just a drifting apart. There was no moment of end or temporary end. No, I I just always thought we'd be in each other's lives. We were such good friends, even after we stopped all that shagging. Um, We were such good friends. (laughs) And, you know, we lived together for years. But, yeah, she went one way and I Mm -hmm. went the other. Yeah. And so Striparama... Mm. We actually haven't spoken that much specifically about Stripperama, <laughs> <laughs> which no. is like, it you know, tends to be a theme it's on okay. this show. I just end up talking about other things. Um, what, you, you said you were there for about five years. Why did you get out? Well, again, because I did, had that job with the government and mm-hmm. burned all my bridges with the King's Cross you know, I really didn't want the clubs to get shut down. They got shut down when I was overseas. Tallulah rang me and said, oh, my gosh, you did it. You know, you've, you've made these people, these terrible people that are actually being held responsible for all the terrible, horrible things they've done. 
and the clubs are all shut down and they couldn't reopen unless they had their new, that new licensing that I'd introduced. So I never really, I never went back to King's Cross until recently during the pandemic. I went back and filmed part of my repertoire in Striparama and talked about the history of it and talked about what had happened and talked about Elizabeth Burton. So it's all there in a way for whoever might want that history as, as part of the project I made during the um, epidemic. But, it, yeah, I don't feel good mm. when I walk around King's Cross anymore. So I've never felt right about it ever again. Because you feel mm. like there's a, like a, a physical threat. Yeah, of, okay. there's definitely still there. It's definitely still... Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, it is. It is. Everybody else has come and gone, and I know there'll be a time when that element's gone too, and hopefully... I I keep dreaming one day I'll be able to open my own club in King's Cross. I do know other women who've opened their own clubs in King's Cross, and uh, they're they're really amazing clubs, so never know. And and so have you got a name for it? Is it Mitzi's? That'd be cute. That would be really cute. Maybe it will be. <laughs> Do you have any memories of Stripperama or clubbing from your own queer scene that you want to share? Well, if you do, please get in touch. I want to create the biggest online record of people's memories and stories of queer clubbing. Go to lostspacespodcast.com and find the section Share a Lost Space and tell me everything about what you got up to. You can also reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where my handle is Lost Spaces Pod. Find out more about Imogen by visiting her website, imogenkelly.com.au, or visiting her on Instagram. Her profile there is The Imogen Kelly. Lost Spaces is not only a podcast, but a concept record as well. I have been writing songs about queer venues and the people who used to live their lives there, and will be releasing songs over the coming year. You can hear the first single, which is called Well Groomed Boys, and is playing underneath my talking right now on all good streaming platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate if you subscribed, left a review on your podcast platform of choice, or just told someone who you think might be interested in giving it a wee listen to. I am Kay Anderson, and you have been listening to Lost Spaces. <laughs>